Stream Sundays. How often do you get to experience that? And think about all the things we're teaching kids. Um, but it's amazing to think over 2,200 kids got to experience uh, the gospel, lived out around them through, student, through over 1,000 volunteers. And you think about what that represents, because it's not addition, it's multiplication. All of, those, all of those students and volunteers and kids have families and brothers and sisters and parents and aunts and uncles and neighbors that they get to go out and now represent Jesus to in a more profound way. And so we're excited that we get to be part of a big story that gets to love kids in that way. Uh, as being part of this big story, uh, this morning's kind of cool. We get to celebrate something as a Mariner's Church. Our sister church in Huntington Beach is launching a brand new campus today uh, at the Central Library right there in Huntington Beach. So if you have friends or family up that way, uh, you can tell them there's a Mariner's Church in their neighborhood. And one of the things that we're committed to is praying and being with them in that journey. Um, all of the campuses are praying and being with, with us in our journey of finding a lead pastor. And so we want to be with them in launching a campus I think Huntington's that way, so if you would just extend a hand that way as a physical representation of being with them, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story that we get to take part in today. We've been singing about it and acknowledging it, and as we study it, we remember that it's a gift from you. And so thank you of what we get to take part in, not individually, but even in the context of community and your church. We thank you for the gift uh, of the Huntington Beach location. We pray for that church today that you would pour your favor and your smile and your blessing upon it. Those leaders and the pastors, uh, the volunteers and the people that will represent you in that community. We believe and anticipate and pray that it will be different as you shine your light through them in that place. Thank you for the privilege of being on this journey together with them. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You ever notice how people start to look like, talk like, sound like, become like whatever they're hanging around. Do you guys do that whenever you're like go to a foreign place? Maybe you start developing an accent or just start looking like... Sometimes this can be kind of a tragedy in this guy's case. Um, this guy's case. <laughs> and it's not just the common people, you know, poor Cher and her dog. They're like, what were you thinking? Like, why did you choose that? And then there's the ultimate dog, which is Snoop Dog. And it's hysterical, like, really? Like, you guys weren't thinking about this. So sometimes it's more accidental than intentional, but we see it played out even in kids. You ever see kids, and you're like, oh, you look just like your mom, just like your dad. So this little guy, that is me when I was a kid. That is my son, Tate. Right? It's, what? Clearly my son. That's my wife. That's Holiday at age, like, five. And this is our daughter, Cozy, at age five. So you start to see, like, wow, there's a resemblance that takes place in the family. Those are my boys. So clearly yawns aren't the only thing contagious. Nakedness apparently is also contagious. Um, but then here's the generations. That's my dad and me and, our, and my two sons. So three generations. That's just my garage. No big deal. So, you know, being a pastor is good these days. But the bottom line is you just start to see these resemblances that take place. And, and part of it, at least in the case of family, is, is it's God's intention. It's his design. And if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, you can flip there if you want. We're just going to look at a couple verses there, and then we'll move on. But we should start at the beginning, because it's a very good place to start. Any Sound of Music fans? One. I get so much... I lo, who likes the Sound of Music, really? Honest? Okay. So I'm not the only one. I told... You know, these Saturday night things, like, I can appreciate the country hoedown and everything... But I'm like, how about a, a Sound of Music sing-along in here with, like, popcorn and everything in the movie? Are you, would you guys show up? 
Who's with me? All right, we'll see, Kim. Okay, Genesis 1. We're not talking sound of music. We're talking image. Genesis 1, chapter, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In whose image are we created? God's, right? Pretty clear. It says it like 86 times in there. We are created and designed in God's own image. And so we're designed in the image of God. Every human being that walks the planet is created in whose image? God's, right? And we're designed as a reflection, not just as an individual, but as a people group. And we see that as we move on in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Look at what it says. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You start seeing that it's not just about an individual that's designed and created in the image of God or to reflect who God is. It's designed for a people group. We see this in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6. Is it too small a thing for you, that's a plural, to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then in Psalm chapter 24, the first two verses say this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Whose image are we created in? Okay. And who owns everything? God. Okay, so what we have, what he's setting up then in this context is, you, as an individual, are absolutely, skillfully designed and created uniquely in the image of your Father. But it doesn't stop there. He is saying you, as a people, are designed to reflect that image and participate in the redemptive work of all creation. He's saying everything is mine. I created everything, and I want you to participate in it. He sets it up in community as for people group. But right after the Adam and Eve, right after he creates them, the first thing he says is go procreate, populate the world. Create more reflections of me and live in community. It all belongs to God. And we're designed to be a picture of God's love, but also participate in creation and the restoration and redemption of this kingdom work around us. We are in the world for the world. And that was all beautiful for like two chapters of Genesis. But then it all starts breaking down. Go to Genesis chapter 3, the first six verses. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Okay, side note. I love the little parentheses. Where was Adam? He was with Eve. Okay, so, guys, we can't throw Eve under the bus anymore. You know what I'm saying? We go through life saying it was all her fault. And it's like, it's just not true. There was some passive, wimpy guy standing right next to Eve just going, yeah, it looks like a good idea. Go for it. Right? And all the women said, amen. Okay. Side note, that's not what we're talking about. But this is where it starts to go sideways. Because the serpent shows up and he goes, hey, you were created in the image of God. Are you sure? Yeah, he didn't really say that, did he? Look at how he made you. You're in his image. He gave you all these skills and gifts and abilities. You should say, don't you want to know good from evil? And it's good for you to eat. And this is good food. Why wouldn't you want to take that? You deserve it. And this is a lie that perpetuates itself through the whole Bible and even to us today. Go over to 1 Kings chapter 21. First and 2 Samuel, Joshua Judges, First and 2 Samuel, and then First and 2 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 21. Look at how this shows up in this story. 1 Kings 21, verses 1 through 7. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. King Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or even if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So, It seems like a great deal. He's saying, I'll give you anything it's worth. I'll even make more. But the whole point was not just to make money on something at that point. You see, it was the inheritance of his ancestors. It was something that God had given them throughout history. It was part of their identity. And he's going, I can't give you my identity for any price. I can't sell that. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So he lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Way to go, king. That's powerful. So his wife Jezebel came in and said, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? And he answered her, Because I said to Naboth, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard. But he said, I won't give you my vineyard. Doesn't this sound like a six-year-old? I said this, and he said this. And it's like, so anyway, Jezebel, the sweetheart that she is, solves this. She says, Is this how you act as king of Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. She says, are you kidding me? You're the king. You own everything. You're going to let some guy stand in your way? Look at who you are. Look at your power. Look at your prestige. Look at your position. You're going to let this guy stand in your way? Go eat. I'll take care of this. And so she goes out and basically creates a plan to have him killed, and then they take over the vineyard. You're the king. You deserve this. You earned it. What are you going to let somebody stand in your way for? Sounds just like the garden and the serpent, doesn't it? Really? You can't eat that tree? You're created in the image of God. Look at who you are. He's given you everything. And it sounds like us. That's the way we start to play our stories. We start to think that we're king. Remember, who owns everything? Who created and designed us? Right. But we lose sight of that, and we start to think that we're pretty awesome. Look at what I did. Look at what I created. Look at the skills I have. Look at the abilities I have. Look at the job. Look at the power. Look at the prestige. Look at the position. I must be king. 
No. You're just stewarding the resources that God has given you and created and designed you to carry as an image bearer of the Father. This is the first gift my wife ever gave me. We weren't even married yet. It's a journal. And I wasn't much of a journaler then. I still fight to journal today, but I've learned that it's awesome to record what God's doing and how he shows up. But all that to say, she'd always been a journaler, and it was amazing. She wanted me to start experiencing God in this way. So she gives me this journal before we were married. This probably 15 years ago. And I thought, wow, that thing's pretty cool. Because I always thought journaling was a little wimpy. You know, journals have like flowery stuff on them and all that. And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't think so. So it's kind of awesome. It's all leather and cool. And she's like, hey, so what do you think? And I go, I think it's awesome. And she goes, do you see how it has like, you know, a crown and everything on it? I said, yeah. She goes, do you know why? And I said, yeah, because I'm the king. And she's like, no, I thought you could write to the king. And I went, of course, that's what I meant. (laughs) The enemy of community is self. God did not design us to live alone. He designed us to live in the context of community. He designed and created us in his image to be a picture of his love to the world. And the only way that that takes place is when we are in authentic, honest community with one another. And the only way we can be in authentic, honest community with one another is when we do not have our eyes on ourselves, but when we have our eyes on each other. And we start to see this and the way it plays out in the world. And we see it in ourselves because there's things that start to obscure the reflection that we have of our Father. And the first thing that obscures it is what has always taken place, and that is our own pride and our own selfishness. And we start to think, well, wait, I just have to get mine, and I just have to create my own world, and I just have to become all that God's created me to be, and that's enough. And it's like, no, it's not. Remember, God created you, and remember, He owns everything. So anything you have, anything you are, is a gift from him. But as soon as we start to lose sight of that, as soon as we put our eyes on ourselves and start to chase our own individual story, we put up walls and we start to break down community and it doesn't happen the way it's supposed to. And God is relentless in helping us rediscover what authentic and true community looks like in our lives. The whole rest of the Bible puts on display his love and the way he pursued us to remember who he is and who we are and how we're designed and what we're created for. And the sad thing is, is we know this to be true. So even when we start chasing ourselves, we try and satisfy this need for community in other ways. And we settle for cheap imitations of what God really wants us to live like and become. And so we'll start to think, well, yeah, I'm in community. I play on a sports team. I play basketball every Monday night with these guys. That's great. You're not in community. You're exercising. I'm in community. I go to school. I'm part of this group, the club. And, oh, that's great. You go to school. You're learning. You're not in community. And we start to settle for these cheap imitations. Well, I go hang out and spend time together. That's great. But where is the place where you ask the question, 
Do you remember who designed you? Do you remember that you were designed and created to live in community and reflect God? Do you remember who owns everything? How are you doing in becoming the husband that God designed you to be? Or the wife that God designed you to be? Or the friend that God designed you to be? How and where are you loving other people? That's not to mention just walking through the most honest, desperate places of life. That's authentic community that God wants us to live in. It's not about going to the same university or working at the same place or playing on the same sports team or dropping our kids off at the same school. That's not community. Community isn't created in those spaces. Those are cheap imitations. Community is discovered because, remember, we're already pre-wired for it. We're hardwired for community. We have a desire and a longing for it. So what does it look like? Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. We get this great picture in Paul's letter to the Ephesians about what true, authentic community looks like, about what God's inviting us into. Ephesians 2, verse 11 starts, Therefore, basically because of Jesus, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body and by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. You guys were separate. Let's talk here for a second. He's talking about two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. Okay? And he's saying you were separate. Not only were you separate from each other, you were separated from God. And this isn't like, oh, we just don't like each other, we don't get along. You know, it's not like you shop at different stores or went to different schools or root for different sports teams. These are two groups of people that detested each other. They did not like one another. Jews hated the Gentiles. They believed that they were created and their only purpose was literally to stoke the fires of hell, either by their bodies or by their work. If a Jew married a Gentile, they literally would have a funeral for that Jew and they would cut them off from community forever because they would say, you're done. When they traveled through Gentile land, they would stop at the border and clean and shake their clothes off. They would never go into a Gentile house because they would instantly become ceremonially unclean and have to go through. They just, everything, they hated the Gentiles. And the Gentiles hated the Jews. At a time, one of their kings, Xerxes, passed an ordinance to have all the Jews exterminated from the land. Just genocide, kill them all. Jews had been forbidden to read scriptures. In Paul's day, who wrote this letter, at one point, all of the Jews had been kicked out and banished from Rome. So there was equal just hatred and distrust on both ways. They're totally different people, different cultures, different dress, different customs. Jews had a God that they were moving at. Gentiles had hundreds of gods that they would have worshipped. Everything was different. Everything was apart. It wasn't like some metaphorical boundaries that existed. They were separated by a lot of distance. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. 
His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Jesus brought near. In Christ is the only place you find true, authentic, biblical community. Everything else in the world becomes a cheap imitation of what God designed. So what God originally created and designed for us in his image to show and demonstrate his love to the world and all of creation was broken. The only way now to recapture that picture of community is in Jesus. And he's saying it's in Christ you're brought near. The dividing walls between you guys are abolished. They're gone. And these aren't some metaphorical sort of judgments that we make on each other. Literally at that time, and they would have known this, the temple sat on an elevated platform, and that's where all the temple courts were for anybody who was Jewish. So the the women and the men and the priests and everybody. As you approach, there'd be five steps down, and then there's a wall around it. And then there's another 14 steps and another five-foot wall. And on that wall, it would say, if you are a foreigner or a Gentile, if you cross this boundary, you will be put to death. And so what Paul is saying, the dividing wall that does not allow you to move into the presence of God, into authentic, true, real community with each other, is now gone in Jesus He broke that barrier down. What else did Jesus do in the cross and the hostility? Tore the veil in the temple. So even the Jewish systems and customs of going through priests and rabbis and everybody to access God is now gone. So the Gentile, their boundaries and barriers are gone. To the Jew, their their boundaries and barriers are gone. In Jesus, he says, it's, it's only through Christ that you can be in relationship with God. It's only through Christ that you can really reflect the image that he created and designed for you to live out. And it's only in the context of that image that we get to participate as a community in restoring and redeeming the creation for the way God intended it. And that's what he's saying Jesus put on display. He brought near. He created a oneness. The word that he, he uses here for the new humanity, the oneness, it's not new, as in he takes a Jew and transforms him into a Gentile, or a Gentile and transforms him into a Jew. There's two words in Greek for new. One is, is neos, and one is kainos. And the neos word is basically about a newer version of. So it's new in terms of time. It's always existed. It's just here's the new version The kainos word, which is the one that Paul uses here, is like, this never existed before. This is brand new in terms of quality and what it means and what it represents. And so when you say yes to Jesus, what he does is he makes you brand new in terms of community. You get to fully understand and now represent all of the image that God created us to live in the context of community out to the world. Everything short of that is a cheap imitation. It's not about uniformity, but it's about unity. It's not about us becoming like someone else. It's about us becoming one in Jesus and being restored in relationship with God. 
The new humanity is when people like Jews and Gentiles who normally would have nothing to do with each other can all sit in one space. And it's only because of Jesus that that takes place. He goes on to say in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, which would just represent people on the fringe of society, but your fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Citizens of a new kingdom, members of a new house. No more people on the fringe or 14 steps down from the temple. No more people that have to go through temple courts or a particular person to have access to God. You're all now members of a family, of a house that God is the head of and that Jesus is the center of and the one that unifies and brings together. And I love the picture of a temple. You've got to understand, temples at this time were the most beautiful buildings around. They would take the most time and energy to build the temple. And people would travel for miles and miles and miles to see and to be a part of a temple. Why? Because that's where the presence of God was. And he's saying, you now are a human temple where God resides. And he says, this foundation has been laid. We read these stories in God's word about the apostles and prophets and people that went before us. And he's saying, that is the foundation of faith on which it is built. And the cornerstone is Jesus. And why is that important? Because the cornerstone is what holds walls together. It's the foundation of the building. And he's saying the Jews are this one wall and the Gentiles are one. And in Christ, they're brought together to make one beautiful temple where God resides. And now every single one of you represents a stone that gets fitted just perfectly into this space. Where hopefully people come from miles around to see the image of God, the gospel on display in the world. He's painting this beautiful picture of what it looks like for us to be a temple. And it's not just a church. It's not just Mariner's Mission Viejo. It's not even Mariner's Church's Orange County. It's the global worldwide church of Jesus that unifies and brings together and paints a beautiful picture of the image of God participating, engaged in the redemptive work in creation. That's the calling, the purpose of what it looks like to really live an honest community. And that's the whole central idea of this New Testament, is God creating a way in Jesus to restore what was broken through our own pride and our own humanity. And saying, in Christ is the way this takes place. Jesus puts on flesh and blood and lives out this story. He lives out love and redemption. He lives out compassion and generosity. And he lives this story out of unity in the church, even in the way he calls his disciples. And we've talked a lot, probably. You guys all know one of the beautiful things about Jesus is he called the most ordinary people that you would expect. He didn't call the most genius or brilliant. He just called ordinary people to come and walk with him and be his disciples. And so we have the gospel of Jesus today because of these 12 guys who were what? Fishermen, tax collectors, ordinary people. We're familiar with all of that. But Jesus did something brilliant. At that time, fishermen fished throughout the night because that's when the fish wouldn't see their nets. 
And so they'd be fishing all night, and they would come in in the morning, and they'd empty their nets. And what happened is they would have to pay taxes just out of whatever they had. People would take fish. And so there was like three levels of taxation. The one level of taxation was for Caesar, who oversaw the whole territory. Another one was for King Herod, who oversaw the Galilean region. And the last one is he would have these brokers, Herod would, that would go collect everything. And so they'd go collect the taxes, but then they'd skim. And they'd take stuff. And so it's interesting because we always go, oh, that's so cool. He called people from different walks of life that are just ordinary. You know, so we'd go, yeah, I like that, fishermen, whatever. But what happens is these tax collectors were also Jews. And they were hated because not only were they collecting taxes for someone, they were skimming and stealing from you. And so the first thing Jesus does is do what? Call fishermen and a tax collector and says, hey, guys, let's go. And they went. And he says, we are going to put the image of God and the image of community on display for the world. And he did it before he ever took a step. He did it before he ever did a miracle. Because he called two of the most opposing groups in that world to walk together. And he unified them. And he said, we're going to walk together. And we're going to eat together. And we're going to sleep together, and we're going to live together, and we're going to eat meals, and we're going to weep together, and lament, and grieve things that are sad, and we are going to celebrate, and party, and have a great time when things are beautiful. And he showed them and the world what it looked like to live in honest community, just in by the way he called his disciples. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 gives a beautiful picture about what that looks like pulled forward all the way to us today in the church. It says, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purposes that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. His intent was that now, through the... Us. Nice, I like that. Own it. Now through us, the church, that's the way the manifold wisdom of God is on display. And so the bottom line is we are image bearers. All of us bear the image of a loving Heavenly Father. But what he designed and created in the context of community in its purest, most beautiful form can only be put on display to the world through the church. Everything else is a cheap imitation. And he's saying you have to live and put the gospel on display in a powerful way. And some of us, what we choose to do is try and live this individual gospel out. And it's like we're just this one little tiny mirror that's reflecting our loving Heavenly Father. And maybe it's a shiny mirror. And we're living a life that is a great reflection of who God is. But it's still really small. And you think about that and you go, well, that probably can't reflect to too many people. But what happens if you take that mirror and, and you put it on this giant, like, disco ball? And you have this huge disco ball of all these shiny mirrors. And then the light of the Father shines on that. What happens? It becomes something that just gets reflected everywhere. And manifold, the word there in Greek, is multifaceted. 
And I think that's what God is talking about in community is, hey, you're this little mirror that's created and designed in my image. But you can't live life there. The most beautiful reflection to the world is going to take place on this multifaceted ball where you all come together and put on display the love of the gospel, the love of Jesus, the love of unity, the love of generosity, the love of forgiveness. But we settle for lesser stories. The story of my journal and me being the king, sadly, that was the reflection of my heart. That was the most honest response of where I was at in my life. And yeah, I was a mirror and, and I was reflecting God, but I was obscuring that image. And it was kind of clouded over with my own pursuit, my own agenda. I had a great job making good money, got to travel to all kinds of cool cities around the United States and even sometimes around the world, expense accounts. And I was thinking, this is it, this is awesome. And I'd show up at church on the weekend, and I had some friends I'd go out with, and it was just pretty empty. I thought I was the king, but it wasn't great. And I wasn't living in the fullness of what God designed for me in community. And I met a friend in my mid-20s a few years after that, and he started sharing his story. And it was the first place I remember I started really experiencing authentic community. Because as he unpacked his story, there were so many similarities, even about the brokenness and about the failure and about the sin and about the hiding and about the feeling unfulfilled. And I just got to say, wow, me too. And that me too started this journey of honesty. And my wife and Mariner's Church helped me unpack that in the years since. Holiday and I got in a small group with some people after we got married, just continuing trying to figure out what does authentic, honest community look like? And we got to live it out the way the Acts 2 church did, where they got together and break bread and told stories, and they supported each other in desperate places, financially and otherwise. And we celebrated some great things in the past 14 years. We got to celebrate babies and anniversaries, new jobs, but we also walked through some desperate seasons together. Cancer, losing babies, people moving and splitting and going different directions. But we did it together. And that accountability to continue to become and to clean our mirrors and become the reflection that God wants us to be, but as something that's part of a bigger story, has taught me so much about what it looks like to be unified in Christ. And it takes a lot of risk, and you think about what it demands from us. Because it's really easy to be alone together. It seems like we're terrified of being alone. We're afraid of that, and we weren't even designed for it. But at the same time, we're terrified of being known. And God's saying, that's the only place you're going to truly experience authentic community. Don't settle for the cheap imitations. Don't settle for the smaller story. Let me unpack who you are. And we all get broken in these things. But the church 
has to be the place that puts on display this kind of love, these kinds of relationships that are more than just time spent together or meals shared, that are more than just space that we end up in because we have the same interests or kids. We have to put on display a radical selflessness of love and care for one another, but even love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness for the world around us. A love that's unified and cemented because of Jesus is the cornerstone. And to a culture that's always trying to find differences in individuality, we have to be a place that celebrates what's common. We have to be the place that screams, you are all created in the image of a loving God. And he designed you uniquely, but it's not just for you or about you. It's to be part of this multifaceted, beautiful picture that exists in and through Jesus to redeem and restore the brokenness and the sadness that exists in the world around us. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. If you would, just close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment. And if you would, I just believe that as you are created in the image of your Father, He's speaking to you this morning. Maybe just consider that question. Why are you here? And how are you living out this story of community in your life? Or anything that's clouding or obscuring the picture of God in and through you? Something you need to confess? Or maybe today God's just inviting you to rediscover and re-engage the beauty of honest community. And you came in today feeling alone. God doesn't want you to be alone. And we don't want you to be alone. And if you're feeling alone in your story this morning, we want to pray for you. If you're feeling alone relationally or spiritually or emotionally, maybe there's distance between you and someone, we want to pray for you this morning. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, um, to live honestly in community with that. And if you would just stand wherever you're at, if you're feeling alone this morning, so we can pray for you. a courageous step to trust God and to trust us, but I just invite you to stand if that's you this morning. And if, if you 
as the church are close to these people that are standing, would you just move close to them? Just as a representation of the physical presence of God and community, just move close to them, put a hand on them, or just say, hey, I'm, I'm going to be with you in this. For the rest of you, would you just extend a hand towards one of these just as our representation of being with them and let's pray. Father, we thank you that you created us. And we acknowledge that and remember that this morning, that you created every single one of us uniquely and you designed us intentionally and beautifully and wonderfully. And so we celebrate that today, that we are made in your image. And in that, God, we also remember and acknowledge that you own everything. So thank you for inviting us into this amazing story of community. And for these, God, that have stood this morning, that feel alone, God, we pray that you would show up in a powerful way in their life, even in this moment, that just by the people standing with them, they would feel a sense of community and of you, of love and of peace and of strength and of purpose and of power. God, that you would heal and mend and bring freedom into their souls and that you would tangibly give them a way to move through life as a part of your beautiful picture of community, honestly and authentically, with all of the celebrations and joys that that brings and all of the grief and the sadness and the pain and the brokenness. God, none of us make it through life alone. And so today we thank you for the courage and we pray that you and only you can bring the picture of community that they are longing for in their lives. And Lord, may this be a place that is a beautiful community and picture that reflects you, Jesus, to the world. Through our compassion and our generosity and our love and our forgiveness, let it begin with us, with each other. And God, we pray that it is something that would shine brightly to the world around us, that this county, that our workplaces, that our families, that our neighborhoods, would be different because of you in us. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to shine who you are to this world. Thank you that we can't do it alone and we live together in it. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you all stand and let's just remember and respond to God together. Stop.